Welcome to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz, a candid conversation as we learn about types of dementias, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, frontal temporal, and Lewy body, and the effects on the people we love. Jill's years of dedication and experience help you adapt, overcome obstacles, and find positive outcomes. It's time for Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. Well, hello, everyone. I'm glad to be back in the studio today. Uh, I want to talk today about um, the brain itself and how it affects behavior and personality and why do people do some of the things that they do. It gets very confusing sometimes. We just don't understand what's happening. And... You know, brain injuries, brain diseases themselves are already difficult to live with because the brain is just such a complex organ and it is really the place where all of our thoughts, our emotions our personality, everything stems from. And so when you have any injury or impairment to that spot, your ability to reason through anything isn't going to work. Your ability to um, think clearly without having a muddled brain If it affects certain parts of your brain, it can affect your creativity. It can affect your reading and writing skills. It can affect your motor skills and so on. Now, most of the dementing diseases that we deal with and that I talk about all the time are biological in their nature, meaning it's something um, in your brain, your pathology that is causing you to behave certain ways. It doesn't necessarily mean it's genetic, like you will get it from your mom or your dad or grandfather, whatever it is, but it is biological because it's happening in the brain itself and affecting your mental function and your behavioral function and all those changes that you see when you're having problems. And it changes the chemical balance in your brain as well. So when we have really super difficult behaviors that you're dealing with, which most of you do, you often wonder, you know, like, what is causing this? And what makes it so confusing is that it affects the brain typically rather slowly, not necessarily really quick. It only affects people quickly if they're young, okay? So unless you've had like a a stroke or some type of brain injury, it's going to go relatively slow. And if you are not seeing symptoms every single day, all the time, day in and day out, that person's in, you know, the beginning stages and everything, it can be really confusing. Whereas if somebody has a head injury or they've had a stroke, you can see the effects almost immediately. 
So when people say, did my hitting my head, you know, in a, a um, concussion I had or something like that cause this, chances are any symptoms or any of the after effects you had from having that problem would have happened quickly, not slowly over time. So if it does cause some type of dementia, and especially a dementia disease, um, you know, it really would take sometimes years for it to have an effect on the brain like that. And people struggle with just the very nature of Alzheimer's because the person looks okay. They don't look like they have anything wrong with them. I always think it's funny when people say, you don't look like you have Alzheimer's. Well, what does that, <laughs> what does that mean? Of course, somebody doesn't look like they have Alzheimer's when they're in the early stages because they look normal. They look like they're healthy. And because of that, and because of how it affects the brain just a little bit at a time, people wonder if some of the behaviors that they're dealing with are deliberate or manipulative, willful on the part of the person that has it. And family members will argue about this. They will say, oh, I, I don't think that person's as bad as they are. I think they just don't want to do certain things. They don't want to clean the house. They don't want to cook. They don't want to do this or that. Other times they seem just fine. And we get a lot of contention and, and arguments and things like that. And a lot of those behavioral symptoms you will see have to do with the way you are approaching the person, if you're being very suspicious of them, if you're thinking that they're trying to manipulate you in some way, shape, or form, it's going to be worse. Right? So the thing about the brain itself is that it is composed of literally billions of neurons or brain cells. And they are just microscopic. They're very, very tiny. But they're important because everything you do with your brain, thinking, talking, singing, walking, dreaming, listening to music, things like that, you need those neurons to be firing. You need those brain cells to be working so that you can communicate with other people. And if they're not, then you won't be able to. And that really gets confusing to people. And because it's affecting the brain at, at one one place at, at one moment and another place at another moment, and it could ebb and flow. I, I really don't know the answer to why sometimes people can do things and other times they can't do things. But I do know this, that the brain itself is so complex, so complex, that it's difficult for us to completely understand 
how the beta amyloid flows through the brain and when it affects certain parts of the brain. And with each person, it flows differently. That's why they say if you've met one person with Alzheimer's, you've met one person with Alzheimer's. But it the the way it affects the brain and your cognition, there are a lot of common threads to how that how your brain functions and what parts of your brain are being destroyed and things like that. And because of the fact that the the brain itself performs different functions, if you have, you know, like a stroke or something and, and you can't speak, then we know that the where the stroke occurred in the brain. Okay? We know that it it happened maybe in the center of the brain and uh it's destroying all those cells that makes it easy for a person to talk. Sometimes strokes can cause extensive damage and other times they don't do hardly anything. It just depends on how quickly a doctor gets to you. But when you have Alzheimer's, it's not as clear. And so the damage can be done in many different areas of the brain and can affect and impair a lot of different aspects of how the brain functions from a mental standpoint. So as an example, if, a, if you have a stroke, the damage is done at one time. It's done. It may not get worse unless you have more traumatic brain injuries, TBIs, those kind of things. Um, But Alzheimer's goes gradually through the brain, affects more parts of your brain, and does a lot more extensive damage. And when that happens, different parts of your brain that control cognition, your thinking processes... They get damaged sort of unevenly. It goes here, you know, a little ways, and it goes there a little ways, and it goes around to the right a little ways. And when that happens, the person can do some things well, and the next day they might not be able to do them well at all. A good example of that is they may remember things from long ago, but they can't remember something that happened yesterday or five minutes ago. And our brain is constantly working. I mean, constantly. It's it's helping us see. It's helping us hear. It's helping us walk. Um, Things that we can do, you know, multifunctioning. Like, as an example, you should see the board that Brian, my engineer, works with. I mean, there are so many buttons and gadgets on that thing. I don't know how on any given day, honestly, he knows what he's looking at or what each one of them does. But he does. And he can he can often, um, you know, adjust my voice or a, a guest voice on two different tracks. He can get noise out of another section. But it's kind of an example of how 
A person can talk to someone else, can be listening to information, can be using their motor functions by touching gadgets and so on and so forth, and hearing different sounds against each other. It just gives kind of, I think, a good picture of how complex the brain is. And when it's not working, uh, some of those things would fall off. They just wouldn't work like they should, right? And and the thing is that we kind of assume that other people's brains, like our own, are working like they're supposed to be. But when somebody has Alzheimer's, it's not. So then they do something that's odd or, you know, strange or they put keys in the refrigerator or they say the wrong thing or something has gone wrong. They forget somebody's name. They forget what they were doing or why they walked into the room. Part of the brain has failed to do its job. What part of the brain is it? We don't know. It's so complex. There's all these different functions of the brain, of the of the thinking, of the troubleshooting, of the judgment and reasoning, of speech, of reading, writing, motor skills, all those things. And something's not working right. And probably it's what is controlling the memory and the language first. And then what enables us to move our body parts and maybe even filtering out the things that we don't want to pay attention to or the things we don't want to hear. Like, (laughs) I'll go back to Brian. So when he's trying to edit and adjust the show and I'm carrying on a conversation with him about something else, I'm sure he would like to turn around and tell me to be quiet or give me or shush me or something. But it it is an example of how our brain can do multi-things and still want to filter certain things out, things that people say, um, the way we give feedback to each other, the way that we do the task fully that we want to try and do, things like that. It, it helps us to be able to recognize familiar objects and coordinate everything that's going around you, going on around you, everything. Because it... Even though even though the brain is helping us with that, when a person has impairment because of a dementia disease, that process is skewed. It's uneven. It's not working well on every level at that time. And so when somebody is doing something we don't understand, that's what's happening in the brain. The things that they're doing don't make sense to us, but their brain is scrambling the information and not saying, let's compartmentalize this over here. Let's compartmentalize this over here. Let's ignore this over here while we're thinking about this or that or what have you. And so it all kind of falls apart. It's it's just uncanny how the processing of the brain can cause so much friction and so much damage. And, you know, people say, well, I was talking to my husband and all of a sudden he just got angry with me. But he couldn't remember what I said 
that made him angry. And that makes the caregiver feel terrible because they don't even know what they did. They can't fix it even if they want to. And that person's mad at them and they don't know why. And it makes for a very difficult situation of caregiving. I had to get a drink there. Um, so kind of what happens is our old social skills, the things we've always known that we're supposed to do or don't do, comments we're supposed to make or not make, being politically correct, people like to call it. Sometimes those things, your social graces stick around a little bit longer than uh, being able to decipher what somebody is saying to you, having insight into whatever that intellectual conversation is they were having with you and your ability to speak on it freely instead of using just phrasing and and phrases that are uh, kind of you're used to that we use for coping skills and things like that. We lose that that piece of being able to just interact with somebody in a conversation. It just doesn't really come as easy as it used to. And judgment and reasoning gets all messed up. Knowing when to say something and when not to say something. Uh, knowing whether or not you can actually drive a car well. You know, stuff like that. And... Researchers actually believe that our brains store and process memories of emotions really very, very differently than they do memories of fact. So they may not remember something that is logical or a conversation, but they remember the emotion of the conversation. That conversation made me mad. That conversation made me sad. So they they feel the emotion, but not the actual task, not the actual fact. And that is completely disheveling for caregivers. I mean, they just really, really struggle because, you know, you can go to a doctor and say they're not able to do this or that or they they leave um, uh, ingredients out of recipes. They forgot to flush the toilet. They, they're doing all these really weird things. They're changing lanes in traffic without looking. They're getting lost. They go, come out from the, from the target that they went into to shop and they can't find their car and all this kind of stuff. But then the person with the diagnosis talks to the doctor and they sound like they're fine. They sound they can talk a blue streak. They're able to uh, interact with the doctor, talk to the doctor, and the doctor has absolutely no idea that person cannot care for themselves, that they can't uh, they can't do the activities of daily living well at all. And really, in the, in the whole process of why do people act weird? Why do they say certain things? Why do they uh, forget things that they should maybe remember? 
Why is it if they are supposed to keep long-term memories that they have struggle with long-term memories and things like that? And it's because nerve cells get damaged. It's almost like having a loose light bulb, you know, that just kind of flickers a little bit. And sometimes it connects and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it fails completely. It doesn't work. Oh, we've all seen this. Just a charger on a phone. Sometimes you plug it in and it looks like it's doing good. You plug it in before you go to bed. And in the morning, it's on less charge than you had when you went to bed. It's very similar to that. So even if we do something that seems really simple, the brain has to have those nerve cells and those neurons completely connecting or you can't carry out the task. And sometimes it's flickering like a light bulb and sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's like that charge on the phone where it seems to be connecting and then you get this little warning that says, check your charger. But we don't have something that flashes on our forehead that says, hey, my brain is not completely engaging right now and that's why I'm having problems at this moment. So having said that, if somebody doesn't sleep well, if they are overwhelmed by a lot of stimulation, you know, the TV on, uh, music playing, people talking or something like that, it can prevent that person from having their brain connecting like that light bulb that's flickering on and off very well. And you'll see things, you know, like this, like um, maybe somebody that that goes in to get a cup of coffee and you say, hey, will you get me a cup of coffee too? And then they come back in the room and neither one of you have a cup of coffee, but an hour later, they go in and make themselves a cup of coffee. Sometimes they can do the task, but they can't do it on point. They don't understand and they can't act on the request or the language that you gave them because they're not understanding what's going on. And I would say that those behaviors that really upset you, they are almost never deliberate and they're not intended to tick you off or, or make you angry. It's just happening because the brain cells are damaged and the person is severely limited in the ability for them to understand what you just said, to understand the spoken word to understand any written instructions. Even if you try and explain it, it gets worse. And when you're, you know, when you're trying to explain it, you lose them because Alzheimer's comes with short-term memory loss first and they're unable to learn new things or understand those explanations. And if you think they're just going to remember them or learn it because you're telling them and you're trying to teach them, they they will not catch it. 
They won't, they won't just snap to and do exactly what you want them to do. They're not able to do that. And, and if they stand there and just look at you as family members and friends, sometimes we get irritated because we're wondering why they don't answer us. But they're trying to process what you just said. And trust me, they are trying as hard as they can to understand what you've just asked them to do. But the brain is not processing the task itself of whatever you're asking them to do. And how they feel when you're looking at them like they have two heads or they're not understanding and you're getting a little angry at them will absolutely affect their behavior. It's going to make it worse. They're going to feel most likely anxious. Uh, They're going to feel vulnerable. They're going to feel a lot of things kind of lost in the in the process they're going to feel worried they're going to feel helpless and they live in a world of fear most of the time we are dealing with a world of fear because they they are aware they're supposed to do something and they can tell by your face when they failed at it and they feel like they're making a fool of themselves if they can't do what you ask them to do And just as an example, walk in their shoes for a minute. What would it feel like to you if you wanted to say something? And maybe you even wanted to say something nice to your caregiver, but all that comes out is curse words. How upsetting would that be if you're in a familiar place with familiar people and now it all seems unfamiliar and like something new like people you don't know like places you haven't seen so the only thing we can do in those cases is try to make that person feel safe and loved and secure comfortable and if you can do that most of the time those behaviors will curb they'll they'll diminish What I'm trying to do is give you a different viewpoint of why something is happening or why people aren't listening or why you see behaviors. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of this conversation. Living and working with Alzheimer's and other dementias can often be challenging. Summit Resilience Training provides education utilizing non-medical approaches for those who work with our friends affected by dementia. Believing families still need one-on-one assistance, we provide classes which help them understand the diseases affecting their loved ones, offering strategies and techniques for success with activities of daily living and working with confusing behaviors. We offer in-home assessments to clarify symptoms of dementia diseases and help families work together to find moments of joy while living with memory loss and impairment. Education programs instilling person-centered care philosophies are offered for professional caregivers working in communities and homes, which can be customized for their staff. Training is also available for first responders, such as law enforcement, fire, and EMT personnel. We are passionate that people with dementias, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and others, are approached with compassion and understanding, and those who work with them have all the tools they need for success. 
call us at Summit Resilience Training, 303-420-6988 to schedule a class or in-home assessment. Visit our website at summitresiliencetraining.com for more information. Welcome back to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. Okay, so I'm talking about why people do things sometimes we don't understand. But I'm, I'm trying to give you some insight into the brain on what is transpiring, what's happening when you're trying to talk to them and they don't hear you. And I talked about the connections being like a light bulb or too much going on. Um, the way that we have to process a lot of complex things at one time. Uh, those are difficult. But part of the reason is because when you speak to somebody, they have to hear you. The first process of communication starts with sensory, sensory input. And that is the ability to uh, repeat back to somebody what they just said or get it in your mind of what they just heard, said and you've retained it. And then you're able to continue intellectually with the rest of the conversation. But that's another step in the process. And first you have to remember what was said. And... In 99% of people with Alzheimer's, that isn't going to work. They can't remember what you just said. It gets lost in their whole cognition process. And if they can't even temporarily recall what you just said, they can't respond to you. And even if they hear part of what you said, they can only respond to the part that they think you said. So if you put too much in a sentence, if you, you know, are talking about hypothetical situations, you're, somebody's coming over for dinner, so we need to get a shower or something like that, uh, they may only think about dinner and go in and start putting, um, you know, Things on the table, plates, utensils, things like that. Or they may just think about a shower instead of both pieces together. And if they don't hear any of it or they don't remember any of it and can't act on it, then they're going to get angry with you if suddenly you're leading them to the bathroom to get a shower. They didn't want a shower. They heard you say dinner. So when that person's trying to retain what they've heard, they have to comprehend what you've just said and what it means. And that is almost always when things go haywire. And it seems like they're replying to you in a way that is completely inappropriate, doesn't fit the conversation, nothing like that. But what they're going to do is they're going to act on what they think you said. They're going to try to focus on what they think they heard. 
but they can only respond to what registered in the brain. And if their mental processing understood what you said, then their mind was processing. But if the brain is all scrambled and it messes up the message, they're going to respond in a way to you that isn't correct. And they're going to be doing what they think they understood, even if, you know, they do it in a confused way. I talk to people constantly who have the diagnosis. And they are trying, they tell me, they try to respond calmly. But they see the person they're talking to has become irritated with them. And when that person is seeming irritated with them, then they get angry and they will respond with an angry tone. So I tell caregivers all the time, you control 90% of the emotion in the room. If somebody makes a mistake, just smile. Because if you don't, if you look at them like they have two heads, if you look at them like you don't understand what they just did, you're going to get what is perceived or presented as a behavior of them being angry because they mimicked your emotion. That's what happens. So in a, in a piece of communication, first they have to hear it. And that's the sensory input, right? But then the second part is they have to answer. And if they don't answer correctly, everything goes wrong. And what they say may not be what they intended to say. It could be, you know, they might have said something that was insulting or rude or something like that. Maybe that's not what they meant to say. But it's what comes out. And if you really think about it like uh, the connection on your phone or that light bulb that's flickering because it's not screwed in quite tight enough, it kind of helps to help us understand why a person acts the way they do. And if you can do that, then maybe you can find a way around it. Maybe you can find a way to kind of decipher what they're trying to say or say what you wanted to say slower to them. I mean, we have so much to learn about how the brain processes and and what somebody understands and what they're able to figure out based on your face and the and, you know, whatever energy you're kind of throwing at them. And for the most part, I think that even experts don't completely understand how the brain getting jumbled and not being able to respond appropriately to any given circumstance is a, a huge problem. And very, very difficult. So the best thing I think you can do is just really understand 
that the problem is the brain damage at work, not what that person said or did, or even what they intended. And if you can realize that they just said something mean or nasty and maybe didn't even need to, it may sound counterintuitive, but you need to show them affection. You need to reassure them. You need to respond to them calmly. And most especially when it doesn't make sense. Now, a good example of that is I can go into a memory unit. I'm in them all the time. I'm training in them. I'm visiting certain ones for various reasons. And I will come up to somebody and they will look at me like uh, they're super confused. They're wandering down the hall. They're not knowing where they're going. And I will just kind of say, well, hello, don't you look wonderful today? And they will look right up and smile at me, even in their worst confusion. I had a guy the other day who said, I want to kill everybody. I want to kill everybody in here. I want to kill everybody. And he's just walking around saying that. And it's not funny, but I mean, he was just, that was what was coming out of his mouth. Now, where did he get that? I don't know. I don't know. He was in a memory unit. They didn't have anything on the TV that was feeding that. But he might have come across another person who was uh, behaving very confused, that wasn't making any sense, that was speaking in word salad. And that's what came out. But I didn't stop him and say, gosh, I'm sorry to hear that. I hope you don't kill anybody today. I didn't say that to him. I called him by name. I asked him how he was doing. I said, did you see outside the sunshine? It's a beautiful day. And he just looked up at me and he said, take me outside for a second. Let me see. So I walked him down the hall. You know, and that was a relatively lucid response. I walked him down the hall. I opened the door. I took him outside. I said, what a beautiful day. Isn't this great? Feel that breeze. Oh, let's walk over here and stand in the shade for a minute. And he's smelling the air. He's kind of looking around. And then he turned around and hugged me. So for those of you who think when somebody's saying, I want to kill somebody, I want to kill somebody, and you're thinking that person is being violent, they're just talking. They're just letting emotion out. And for some reason, it's coming out in this negative form, but they don't necessarily mean it. They're not going to walk down and grab a knife and stab somebody. They're just saying they're irritated about something and that's the way it's coming out. I was talking to an executive director yesterday and she was saying she went to assess one of my clients at a community that he's at and uh, that person is moving from that other community into uh, her community and that the people there said that the guy was violent and that he was violent at night. And the caregiver said, well, I haven't actually witnessed it. That's just what I've heard. What a horrible thing to say. I mean, this is a case where if you don't know any better, just keep your mouth shut. That could have ruined his chances to go to a better place. When the truth of the matter is, the place that he's in doesn't have an activity director. They're not uh, doing good engagement and interaction with with him during the day. And maybe at night, somebody tried to put him to bed at 7 o'clock when he's a night owl and never went to bed before 11 o'clock when he lived at home. And so he might have tried to push him away or do something like that. Why is that a behavior? 
And I know many of you out there see these kinds of things. So think again about having that shoe on your own foot. If somebody was making you go to bed at 7 o'clock and you're not tired, what would you do? What would you say? Would you push them away? Would you ask them to leave you alone? Would you respond with an angry reaction? Yes. Hell yes. We expect our people with Alzheimer's to always be redirectable, always be even-keeled. And if they're not, we don't look at what maybe caused that light bulb to not go off, those neurons to not fire. And we immediately want to take it to a, a situation of medication or calming. Why? Are they not allowed to have emotions? Are they not allowed to have emotional outbursts? We have them every day. Drive on a highway in your town. Somebody cuts you off, you want to flip them off. Nobody smacks our hand down. Nobody says, well, we better give that person medication because they flip somebody off in traffic. You know what I mean? They're not going to be perfect. They're going to say and do things that they don't mean to. So as caregivers, you need to understand that process. You need to understand the neuropsychological process of the brain and how complex it is and how the processes need all to be firing for somebody to figure out what they heard, what what they just listened to, and then how to respond. And when they act in a certain way that you don't understand, look at what happened around the last few minutes that maybe could have upset them. I mean, we just have so much more to learn about the process of, of how, you know, the beta amyloid moves around in the brain. And we need to learn about, you know, how, why somebody says or does something. But we also need to make sure that we're understanding about ourselves and the way we react in a situation we should act on. Because 90% of the time, people with some type of dementia disease are not trying to say or do something that seems nasty or mean or deliberate to you. But the process of the brain isn't working and it comes out kind of strange and, and people don't deal with that well. And if you don't deal with it well, that person's going to become miserable, you're going to become miserable, and nobody's going to be happy. And you might not be able to figure out what that person understands or what they intended to say. But what you can do is try to figure out what emotion they're trying to give you. Try to learn more about how the brain works so you can see when they're when they're having trouble with language or when they're having trouble with spatial time, date that kind of thing, or how close they're standing to you. Learn about the brain. Try to understand it. Because the more you can try to learn about all this and be informed and know how the brain gets affected when there's some type of dementing illness, the better you can devise strategies 
to be able to manage not only that person's behavioral symptoms, but your own emotional responses. It really matters because if you can't do that, you're going to have a lot of trouble. And it's okay if you share with that person with with a disease your own concerns. You can try to figure out ways to manage your communication. Talk to each other about how confusing it is and, you know, how sad it makes both of you. And if it makes you worry or have anxiety or anything, talk about it. You might be able to come up with some ideas together that will help you to um, communicate better. Really, overall, just to communicate better. If you can't do that, get a counselor and try to have them help you, but make sure it's somebody that knows how to work with with various dementias. And don't put a big mountain on everything. Uh, Really stop and think about one thing at a time. Try to figure out a strategy or a technique to understanding these day-to-day problems one at a time. Don't make it insurmountable. Don't make it a mountain, okay? One thing at a time. If you're just working on getting them to shower, take your time. Really think about all the ways that you can um, do that without a battle. If it's them not paying their bills, put that aside for another day. Don't get to your end of the rope and then... Make it all seem like a great big mountain. Sometimes just working on the little things one at a time can make it all manageable. It can make a huge difference in the way you're dealing with it. And for goodness sakes, try to get some sleep. There's nothing worse than trying to be a care partner when you're, when you're tired. That's when you're going to give them that attitude that you're going to be... Um, less able to tolerate any irritating things you consider to be behaviors. Things can get out of hand in a heartbeat if you don't try to um, get good rest and, and, and be act and not react kind of thing. And try to maintain a sense of humor. Nothing works better than laughter. Make jokes over things, not not like you're laughing at them, but talk about, you know, things that are funny. If, if you can't remember something, share with them that you can't remember something. Make a joke out of, of things that are, are, you know, strange or surprising or whatever they are. And, and talk to them in a calm way. Be gentle with them. Let them help you with deciding the things that need to happen. Talk to them straight to them, not around them, not to other people. It matters. I just said to a friend the other day uh, who called for some help, and, and uh, she was on the phone with another friend who, were, who was trying to help somebody that has been a really, really good friend to them for years and years. 
And they wanted to know if they should go around that person and talk to their husband. I said, I would absolutely not do that. I would talk straight to that person and try to have a conversation just eye to eye. And be gentle with them. Ask them what kind of problems they think they're having. Can they orient the reality that they see before them? I mean, it's important. It is important to be able to talk to them and not have them be upset. Try to keep them from getting more depressed or or anxious or apathetic. Just be gentle when you're talking to them. And see what the person can still do. Some of their skills aren't gone forever. If we just take our time and we cue them and things like that, they can still do things. They can still play bingo. They can still come over and have ladies' afternoon wine. You know, you can do those kinds of things. And keep excitement down to a minimum because, you know, people who... I mean, I just said laughter is good, but when you've got a lot of people laughing, you've got a lot of visitors in the room, a lot of people talking, it can upset that person and have them get up and walk out of the room. Simplify any activity you give them. Don't make anything too difficult. But continue to involve them in everything. Don't don't cut them out of things. I hear that all the time. My wife used to cook all the time. Now we don't allow her in the kitchen. Really? Why? Just go into the kitchen with her and help her and let her assist you by just adding a couple of teaspoons to whatever that that dish is you're making. Why do we have to cut everybody off? And then we turn around and call it a behavior when they're upset about it. Do you see where I'm going with all this today? I'm I'm just really, I'm worn out with people just kind of discounting that person or thinking because you've told them they can't do something, they shouldn't have a reaction. Look for the things they can still do. Help them focus on the things they can still do. Give them as much freedom to make a mistake as they need. It's okay. Everything doesn't have to be perfect. Why do we have to be perfect? Is anything in this world perfect? No, nothing is perfect. But people try so hard. And when your person is losing, you know, their cognitive function and their memory, we have a tendency to only see what they're losing instead of trying to just readjust and have a conversation about, Look, I realize it's hard for you to make dinner now. How about I come in and help you? I'll help you with cutting the vegetables. I'll help you with, um, you know, rolling out the pasta, whatever it is. They don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be perfect. Nobody has to, you know, discount somebody and not let them do things. I mean, those kind of things just really don't work. And one of the things that I do is I come into a home and I try to visit with the person who's confused and their family members 
and figure out the best level of stimulation and the best communication skills I can help them with and go from there. I try not, I go in and I assess the person for what I think they're able to do and where their cognition is lacking, but I don't count them out. I just change the way I utilize what they have in their home and the things they used to like to do to make it simpler for them to still enjoy some of those activities. So the moral of the story today is just because somebody is behaving in a certain way doesn't mean it's a behavior. Think about if somebody was trying to make you do something you didn't want to do. Okay? And keep them in Engage as much as you can and understand when they say something that doesn't make sense, when they talk in word salad, when they're standing too close to you, when they get irritated and get up and walk out of a room, that light bulb in their brain is not connecting and it's flickering and sometimes it's on and sometimes it's off. It's as simple as that. Don't make it hard. Don't make it hard and learn. Learn as much as you can about how the brain functions and you can do that through my classes. I still have my classes the first Wednesday of every month, 1.30 to 3.30, through the neurology department at University of Colorado Hospital. And that's a mountain time. But if you email me and ask me for that link, uh, we'll just figure out what time zone you're in anywhere around the world. And I don't care if you have to get on at 3 o'clock in the morning uh, just to be on my in my class from 1.30 to 3.30, I invite you to do that because the more you learn, the more you understand, the less we'll stop thinking that people are behaving with, uh, presenting with behaviors and that they're really okay in what they're doing. We just need to have a better understanding of what's happening. A behavior is, is not all parts equal. Sometimes it's us, sometimes it's them. Most of the time, it's the neurons in the brain not functioning. All right, enough said. I will see all of you next week on Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. You've been listening to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. To learn more about her resources, services, classes, or to book speaking engagements, visit Jill's website at summitresiliencetraining.com. A new podcast drops every Tuesday, so join us as we learn more about dementias, resilience, and overcoming obstacles to find a positive outcome. Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz can be found on your favorite podcast provider. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. Musical and technical support provided by Brian Hunter. See you next week.